0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today, we have a guest speaker. Well, uh, if you've ever watched a movie, it's really, really important when you watch that movie to know the context uh, to understand what's going on. And I don't know if this has happened to you, but it's happened to me. Uh, growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, there's so many good movies. Uh, some are being remade or have sequels. Uh, you know, Jurassic Park is one example, right? Uh, but to understand those movies, you need to know the context. And there's so many movies that uh, as a young kid I watched, and I, I didn't really know until I watched them again as an adult, how much I missed, how much just went over my head. Uh, that was really important to understand the movie. I thought it was cool for Jurassic Park, for example, that there were dinosaurs. And I remember going in elementary school pretending to be a dinosaur. But there was so much that I missed. And when I watched it again as as an adult, it's like, oh, man, I didn't even realize that's why the dinosaurs got out. It was David Nerdy or uh, whatever his name is, Dennis Nerdy and uh, his greed. Um, Or maybe you watch movies after reading the book. There's some people that are going to say books are better than movies. I'm kind of in that camp now. Uh, but you, you have to know the context, and those books so often help you know and understand that movie so much better because you know the context. Well, similarly, I think we need to remember when we're reading and we're looking at a message, there's a context to that message. There's a context to that passage. Uh, and I think Craig's done a great job of reminding us, but I just want to take a few minutes this morning to remind us as a church when we're looking at this passage in Second Kings... Second Kings chapter 4 is where we're going to be today, but we need to remember that there's a context to this. And I think what's so important when we're looking at the Bible is to remember uh, that the authors have a point. The authors have a purpose when they're writing the Bible, when they're writing that book or that section of the Bible. And here, First and Second Kings is no different. The author of First and Second Kings, we can think, just wanted to tell us the history of the kings of Israel, right? He's just writing a historical account. I don't. I don't think so. I think if you actually look and read 1 and 2 Kings, it's hard to believe that it's a, a historical account. Because so many kings are listed as good kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And that's all you get. All you get is, so and so was a righteous king who did right in the eyes of the Lord. And that's it. And then, like we saw in 1 Kings, then you have chapters where Ahab, this evil king, gets chapter and chapter uh, talking about... Uh, his idolatry and talking about his uh, his evil turning away from the Lord and turning the people to idolatry and so I think First and Second Kings to get to my point I think the purpose of First and Second Kings why the author wrote First and Second Kings was to show God's people how Israel and how Judah remember we're in the time of the divided kingdom how they fell and how ultimately they were taken into exile and why. And I think that's what the author's point is. He wants to show us. You want to know how Israel got taken away into exile? It wasn't that they just messed up once. It wasn't that they just said the wrong thing to God or they forgot to put, you know, this one thing on the, on the burnt offering. And God was like, that's it. You guys are done. I think First and Second Kings is here to show us that, no, it was King after king and years after years after years of turning to idolatry when finally the Lord who is slow to anger, the Lord who is gracious, finally turns them over to exile. And I think that's the point. And you can see if you go to 2 Kings 17, if you go to 2 Kings 25, I think this also corroborates this. The author kind of gives us a summary of how Israel and then how Judah respectively fell. So I think that's the purpose and if we look, First and Second Kings, you have Elijah and you have Elisha right in the middle of there. And I think the point the author is trying to make is you may ask yourself, why, why is Elijah, he just shows up out of nowhere. Right? Elijah just shows up out of nowhere. Why does the author have Elijah and Elisha in the middle of First and Second Kings? And I think the point is, again, to show the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God amidst a people who are faithless, amidst a people who have turned from him and turned to idolatry. And so we're here today in 2 Kings, and we're going to see uh, through 2 Kings chapter 4, we're going to look at five stories, uh, really five stories of God's faithfulness. But what I've titled today's message is Hope for the Hopeless, because we're going to look at five short stories of hopeless situations. And we're going to see five examples of how God faithfully When he shouldn't, when his people are living in idolatry, God faithfully delivers uh, these people in these stories, and God faithfully provides hope for these people. So we're going to read each of these stories in sections. I'm not going to read all of chapter 4 right now. Uh, I'm just going to look at verses 1 through 7. So if you're with me, 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy word. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elijah said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. When one one is full, set it aside. And so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on the rest. So this is our first story. So what I'm going to do as we're looking at these stories is I'm going to ask us a question. What was the hopeless situation? We're going to look at the details. And then how does God provide in the midst of that hopelessness? And we're just going to keep going along the story. So this first one, what was the hopeless situation here? Well, first of all, we see that her husband has died. And I think if you look at the commentaries, usually we jump right into then explaining how when a husband died, how, how difficult that was for the widow at that time because, you know, financially it was so much different than it is now. But before we even get there, I want to just acknowledge that her husband died, right? Well, whether it's financially difficult for her or not, her husband has died. For many of us, that, that would be hopeless enough, right? Her, her husband has died, but yes, also as the commentators have said, uh, in that time, it was even much more significant because the husband was the one who uh, provided for uh, his household. The husband was the one who had ownership of the land. The husband was the one who uh, kind of ran everything. And so when a husband would die, God had uh, a social structure, a safety net that was in place. There were kinsmen redeemers. There were, was a way that God's people was to come alongside of widows in that time and support them. And so for whatever reason, in this situation this lady doesn't appear to have any of that social support her husband has died and she's in great need well what else what else adds to the hopelessness well her husband was a righteous man and i think that's important to notice again in the context i won't give you too much but I, and i don't want to do too many movie analogies but I, I can't help it here when i read first and second kings during this time i just think of star wars and how if you really know Star Wars well, you've probably forgotten more than I know about Star Wars. I know a little bit. I've seen the movies. I haven't read the books. I haven't, I haven't really got into uh, anything about Star Wars. I don't have a lot of action figures. Uh, we have some Legos that are Star Wars. But but if you think of Star Wars, right, there was the Empire. And the Empire was turned to the dark side. And they were they were who was in charge. They were the government, so to speak. And that's what we have in Israel. The Empire, so to speak, the king here in Israel is turned away from the Lord and is uh, sanctioning and is, in some cases, uh, forcing people to idolatry. And you have this group, you have this, the rebels, right? You have, you have this group, this resistance. They're playing muse music all the time. They're resisting uh, the, the empire. They're resisting. And who are they? Well, they're the sons of the prophets. That's that group we heard of uh, several times as we've gone through This they were following uh, the prophet, and they were a group of of rebels, and their leader, their Luke Skywalker, is Elisha at this time. Maybe Ray, I guess, would be a better one here, because Elijah was maybe Luke Skywalker. Anyway. So they're they're following him, and and what she says is she says, Hey, Elijah, you know my husband. He was one of he was one of the sons of the prophets, and he loved and feared the Lord. And you can hear in her expressing this to Elijah a a grief, a hopelessness, because Here's a guy that I thought, if anybody's going to live forever, if anybody's going to see God's blessings, it's going to be somebody who, in the midst of a a kingdom that's turned away from the Lord, is pursuing the Lord. That's somebody who God's going to bless, right? And she says, my my husband was righteous, and he's, he's dead. And also, adding to her hopelessness, she's left with a sizable debt. And we don't see here, the text doesn't tell us why. It doesn't get into... Uh, you know her her husband 's debt was it student loan debt because he was in the sons of the prophets, which was like a seminary maybe uh, was he trying to to create a new business uh, and, he, and he said, honey, just wait this is going this is going to take off uh, you 're going to use your phone to call a chariot when you need uh, anyway no so we don 't know what his what his debt was, um, and this isn 't part of the message I do want to say uh, just a reminder husbands, if you are the primary uh, breadwinner, so to speak, if you're the provider in your family, how important it is to make sure that you have life insurance, how important it is to make sure that your wife isn't left with a sizable debt. Not, not the point of the message, but I, I don't think we could go past that without mentioning that. But she's left with a sizable debt. So her husband died. He was righteous. Uh, she's left with a sizable debt. And then lastly, the only way she can pay this debt is by putting her sons into slavery. Now that was an acceptable common practice back then. People could put themselves into indentured servitude. People could uh, pay off their debts by working. Uh, Probably the closest we have to that is, I've never seen it happen, but whenever you go out to eat and you can't pay your bill, you could always offer to wash the dishes or whatever, right, to pay off your your meal. I've never had to do that, but uh, that's kind of that. She's saying, this is all I can do. The creditor has said, hey, you know, I've looked at everything. You don't have anything of value. The only thing you have is these two sons that Could work for me. And so she cries out to Elisha in the midst of her hopelessness. Well, can you relate to this hopelessness? This woman and her husband were some of the very few in Israel living for the Lord during this time, fearing the Lord, serving him in ministry, and standing firm against idolatry. It reminds me of Psalm 73, where the psalmist seems to understand this. He's perplexed at the apparent injustice of God, and he talks about how he looks at the wicked and sees them thriving. But the righteous seem to experience trouble, even to the point where in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, In vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. Have you ever been there? Have you ever looked around and and your life doesn't seem to be going better as a Christian? Your life doesn't seem to be thriving as a Christian, but seems to be worse than the people that you know that are not Christians. Have you ever been there despairing to the point of wondering, what's the use of living for the Lord if I'm just going to experience trouble like this? Well, thankfully, the story doesn't end with this widow in despair. So let's look again at what happens. What does Elisha say? Well, he says, he asks her, first of all, what do you have? And probably the same question the creditor has already asked her, right? Hey, what, what, what do you have of value? And so Elisha says, what do you have? And, and you can hear in her, she says, I, I don't, I've just got this jo- jar of oil. That's all I have. Well, Elijah tells her, okay, let's, let's start with that. Uh, now let's go and why don't you go borrow as many, well, he doesn't say as many. He says go borrow empty vessels, and what does he say, in the ESV and not too few. It's kind of the same way I asked my wife to go order uh, canes, right? Go get some chicken fingers and not too few. <laughs> so Elijah tells her to gather empty vessels, and man, this is, the commentators talk about this, but just think about the amount of faith that this would take. To go and to go gather empty, like, man, I don't, I don't know what you're doing, Elisha. This doesn't seem to make sense. Why don't you just say something and, and give me money or give me something. And, okay, I'm going to go gather empty vessels. And think about, too, when she goes to her neighbors and knocks on the door, do you have any empty vessels? Perhaps not too few. Uh, and, and they give her empty vessels and maybe word's starting to spread. Like, man, what's this lady up to? She's collecting all these jars from us. Uh, and, you know, picture, picture jars, maybe at like five-gallon buckets from Home Depot, right? You're going to your neighbors. You're like, man, you got any orange buckets I can borrow? Uh, and at some point, and it's interesting, it doesn't say how long it took. It doesn't say anything. It just says, Elijah tells her what to do, verse 5, so she goes from him and shuts the door behind him. We're supposed to assume she goes out and she gets the empty jar. She doesn't not listen to him. She goes, and her and her sons, you can picture them going around, like a fundraiser with their wagon, and they're asking for buckets, and they get these buckets, and she closes the door behind her. And it's interesting. Elisha tells her to shut the door behind her. For whatever reason, this miracle that was about to happen wasn't to be on public display. This miracle that was going to happen wasn't to be publicly displayed. And I think part of it's because, man, just think about how miraculous that is going to be. She's just going to start pouring oil from one smaller jar into just multiple jars so God tells her through Elijah to go and to shut the door but listen it doesn't say you go by yourself and shut the door again not the point of the message but I I can't skip God's love for and his care for the next generation in this story shuts the door with her and her sons there so God wants her sons to experience his love and his compassion and his power alongside of their mother. Parents, how many times do you do that? Do you serve with your kids when you serve the Lord? Do you take your kids with you to go on service projects? Or are you more likely to leave them at home with a babysitter while you go and you serve somewhere in the church? I feel like, again, not the point of this text, but I feel like here is an example of how God miraculously provides and the boys are there to see it with their mother and they're, they're able to experience that joy with their mother. And so let's do that. Let's let our kids see us experience God's goodness and God's power together. Let's serve together. So he tells her to shut the door behind her and then Elijah tells her to fill the empty containers. And again, I, I don't have any movie analogies, but I just picture this could be a movie. She's there and she says, well, boys, give me another jar. And you can see her the first time, maybe she's kind of, Timidly pouring it out, and she pours it out, and then, and then she starts excitingly asking me for you know, asking her, her sons, "Give me another jar, give me another jar." She's filling it up, and she finally gets to that last one. And that's when all of us were like, "Man, you should have asked for more jars." Uh, but she gets to that last one, and it stops flowing, and then she goes to Elijah, and Elijah says, "Go sell the oil, uh, pay your debts, and then listen, and live on the rest. Again. Look at the overflowing goodness of God. He doesn't just provide down to the uh, the scent of how much debt she had. And now she's on her own to try to, you know, figure things out. Then maybe have your sons figure out that business your dad was going to start or whatever. No, God provides more and abundantly more than what she needs so that she can live on the rest. And I don't think the point is supposed to be so now we all go from here and we... We fill up jars of oil. The point is God's goodness and His faithfulness to His people over and abundantly. Here in this situation of idolatry, this situation where Israel is turned from the Lord, God is still faithful and still providing through His prophet, Elisha. Well, let's look at our next story. Second Kings chapter four, verses eight through 10. Uh, reading verse eight, one day, Elisha went on to Shunam, where a wealthy woman lived. Some translations say, a notable woman. Who urged him to eat some food. So, whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put it there uh, for him with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. So, this little bit of context before we get into the hopeless situation. So, what's going on? Well, there's a lady in Shunem. Uh, where's Shunem? Uh, it's in the Jezreel Valley. It's it's prob- it's located off a major trade route. So probably, more than likely, it's where Elisha would have traveled whenever he was going on to other places that he was going to minister. And so she sees Elisha, and she convinces him to stop and eat some food. And we don't see what kind of food. We don't see how she convinces him, uh, but she she encourages him to eat some food. She urged him to eat some food. And then it was so good that, I guess... It encouraged him, strengthened him. It was really good barbecue, whatever it was. You notice the messages that Craig gave me all have to do with food. <laughs> Something there, I don't know. Anyway, so she convinces him to eat food, and then he does. He stops there, and then she says to her husband, hey, this guy's coming here to eat food, but you know what? Like, what? We've, got, we've got room. We could, we could build a guest room for him. Um, and it's not you know, over-exaggerated. It's just a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Uh, so he can just have a place to stay. He can rest there. He can sleep there on his way down. And so she does. And her husband gives her permission. She has this room built for Elijah so he could stay there. All right, let's keep reading. 2 Kings verse 11, chapter 4. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber, this is Elisha, and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he, sa- uh, and he said to him, to Gehazi, say now to her. See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. Well, in the second story, what's the hopeless situation? Well, first of all, the Shunammite woman doesn't have a son. Uh, and obviously, as parent, if you're a parent here, or if you long to be a parent, there is, I'm sure, a desire for her to, to have a son, to, to be a parent but I think what was even more in view then was just how we have, to, we have to think about culturally how important it was for a son to be born to a family. That was the way their family name was carried on. That was the way the, the land was to, to be given. Uh, it was to be inherited to that son. And as a woman at that time, if you weren't able to provide a son, if you were not able to bear a son for your husband, uh, it, would be, it would be full of shame. You would be ashamed. Uh, because you weren't able to do that, what you were called to do. The closest I can think is uh, in today's culture. Usually, it's men who provide, and so if you're a man or just a person who can't work and provide for your family, there's that feeling of, of, "What am I? What's 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 my usefulness? What am I good for? I can't do this." Now, I don't think that's true, obviously, but I think that would provide this hopeless situation. So she feels hopeless. And look what else it says: her husband is old. That's supposed to draw our attention back to what happened with Abraham and Sarah. It's an unlikely situation. It's very unlikely. Uh, Time is running out and it's very unlikely that a son's going to be born. So she's in this hopeless situation. And can you relate to the hopelessness here? Is there something that you've asked the Lord for day after day, month after month, maybe year after year? And I think the text here implies that she wanted it so much... Uh, that now when, when he's saying, hey, what about, a, what about a son? And she says, no, no, don't lie to me. Why is she saying that? Because you can picture she's been praying for this so long that now she's given up hope. And she said, you know what, this, is, this isn't for me. God's never going to give me this thing. And you can hear that in her voice when she says, no, don't, don't lie to me. She's saying to Elisha basically like, don't mess with me, bro. Don't mess with me. Don't tell me I'm going to have a son because I've, I've already resolved in my mind that this isn't going to happen. Well, have you given up hope? That God will provide the things that you've asked for. Maybe for you, you're wanting a child like in the story. Maybe it's a job change. Maybe it's employment at all. Maybe you have a health situation that you want healed. Maybe there's an injustice that you're praying for God to bring justice to. Maybe there's a relationship that you're wanting God to heal. Whatever that thing is, I believe one thing that the Lord would have you and I see today is that he is still working And he can still provide that thing that you're asking for. Now, it's not a formula, but I think it's interesting that when God provides for her, it's when she's turned to the Lord and when she has uh, blessed this servant of God, when she's turned to God's prophet, is when the Lord has blessed her. He provides that one thing when she presses into relationship with the Lord by welcoming God's prophet. Well, how does he provide? Well, very simply, he provides a son. Look what it says. Uh, Verse 17, but the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elijah had said to her. Just like, and I mentioned Abraham and Sarah, just like Sarah. Sarah's like, nah, this isn't going to happen. And God says, no, really, it's going to happen. And a year from then, it happens. And same thing here. She says, don't mess with me. I've wanted this thing so long. Don't tell me this is going to happen if it's not really going to happen. And it does. A year later, she has a son, and God delivers on his promise. Well, let's keep going. Let's look at our third story. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 18-25. through When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon. And then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed... ...of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. And then she called to her husband and said, ...send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys... ...that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, ...urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God... At Mount Carmel. Well, what is the hopeless situation here? Well, the, the boy dies. And we don't know how many years later this is, but we see in the story there's a couple clues. First of all, he goes, he's old enough to go out to work in the field. Second of all, he's young enough to be carried by a servant. And unless it's like Buddy the Elf uh, sitting on his dad's lap, he sits on his mother's lap. And so he's probably not an adult. He's probably... 12 years old or younger, right? He's a small boy who can be carried and who can sit on his mother's lap. We don't know what he died of. Some speculate dehydration. Uh, I've even heard some commentary uh, talk about it's, it's maybe indicative of the father's negligence, right? He's out here in this hot day and his dad doesn't give him water. I mean, that's not in the text. I don't know. I think that might be a little speculative. Uh, I don't see that in the text. But don't we often want to hear an explanation. When we hear somebody's died, we want to hear an explanation. I think we find comfort when we hear that a child died because of a parent's negligence, because we like to think as parents that we can control those type of things. We believe if we're just good, diligent parents, our kids won't experience harm. But we aren't given an explanation to why he dies here, and my guess is that it would be similar to what Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 9 when they say, "Rabbi." Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus tells him it was neither, but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus proceeds to heal the blind man. And I think it's similar here. We don't know why the child dies, but we know he dies. Well, what happens? Let's keep reading. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 26 through 30. It says, When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi his servant, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so he arose and followed her. Let's keep talking about this hopeless situation. So first of all, the the son dies. What else is hopeless? Well, the woman is devastated. Right? She evidently puts the child in in the guest room of Elisha, closes the door and doesn't tell her husband what's going on because he asks her, hey, what's going on? Where are you going? Uh, And she says, all is well. And she gets to Elisha and and Gehazi is there and and asks the questions that Elijah has uh, told him to ask her. And she says, all is well. And then she goes to Elisha and clings to his feet in distress. And you can hear the pain in her voice when she says, didn't I tell you not to get my hopes up? Didn't I tell you not to give me a son if you weren't really going to give me a son? And the woman clings to Elisha. And verse 30 says, she will not leave Elisha. Similar to Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis, she's desperate for God to answer her and to bring back her son. She will not let go. Have you been there before? Have you been longing for something, praying for something, and when you finally get it, you have it only to have it taken away? You've been praying for that relationship to be restored, and now that person's moved away. Or you've been asking for a child, and now you have your child, but you've been, the child's been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Or maybe to keep it lighter, right? You've been praying for a child. We've seen this so many times. You're praying for a child. You finally have this child. And, man, now I am not sleeping through the night. I didn't realize. All those parents with the bags under their eyes, it's from those children. Uh <laughs> Or you finally get that job, only to have it in jeopardy again. I found it to be true. I, I don't. I don't have a verse to point you to, but I found it to be true that often, because of His love for us, when God gives us that thing we've been wanting for a long time, He finds a way to test us to help us not to turn to that thing, but to turn to Him. Well, in God's goodness, this isn't even where this story ends. Let's keep going. Second Kings four thirty-one through thirty-seven. Gehazi, like Elisha told him, went ahead and laid his staff on the face of the child. So Gehazi's running, right? He's going fast. He runs, uh, lays the staff on the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet Elisha, who had been coming towards the house with the Shunammite woman. And he told him, the child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child laying dead on the bed. So he went in and shut the door behind him and the child, and he praised to the Lord. And then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him. And the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon the child. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. And she came and fell at his feet. Bowing to the ground, and then she picked up her son and went out. How does God provide in this hopelessness? Well, God raises her son. And it's interesting, I, there's so much comments, we're not going to get into it, but about what is, why does Elisha send Gehazi with his staff? I mean, it, it could have been that Elijah thought, man, the staff has already been used to perform other miracles, so maybe, maybe God will recognize it. If we just go and lay the staff on the boy, uh, it will heal the boy, but notice that doesn 't do anything. Then Elisha prays to the Lord, le- kind of leans over the boy, lays on the boy, and God miraculously raises the boy. The point is not the procedure; the point is that God miraculously raised the boy this isn 't uh, supposed to be a prescription for okay, if you have a child that dies out in the heat, what you 're supposed to do is lay on the child your hands on their hands, your face on their face, like CPR or something. Right, that's not what's going on. What's going on is a, a miracle where God raises a dead boy through uh, his power. It's working through Elisha. It's God hears Elisha's prayer and raises the boy. Well, let's keep going. We've got two more hopeless situations to look at and application to make. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 38 through 41 is another story of hopelessness. What's this hopelessness? Well, let's see. Elisha came again to Gilgal. ...where there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant... Set on, the, uh, ...set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine... ...and gathered from it in his lap, so a lap full of wild gourds... ...and came and cut them and put them into the pot, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out... Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. And he said, uh, then he said, bring flour. And he threw it in the pot and said, pour out some for the men and they may, that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Well, what's the hopeless situation here? Well, there was a famine in Gilgal. Where is Gilgal? Well, glad you asked. Gilgal is in Israel. Gilgal is in a place where right now is experiencing a king and a kingdom who's turned away from the Lord. And why is there uh, a famine? Well, famines happen all the time. But here, probably, like Craig pointed out a few weeks ago, this is probably a continuation of Leviticus 26, verse 23. Where God promised, if this kingdom will not turn back to me, first of all, I'll send wild beasts, right? If send wild beasts that will bereave parents from their children. We saw that with the go up baldy and the wild bears coming out. Well, here's a continuation. We're still in this same area, literally almost the same exact region, and here now there's a famine, and God says in verse 23, if this kingdom will not turn to me, I will send famine. And there's a famine. So there's a famine, and uh, we have God's people, again, picture the rebels from Star Wars. They're meeting together. Uh, they're meeting with, they're huddled together with Elisha during this famine, uh, and what uh what happens is elisha says let's go let's put a let's put a pot on let's provide food for god's people and they go and they gather and you can picture this guy going out and seeing this this large vine with gourds during this time of famine and being excited and saying, oh my gosh look you know gathering like a lapful picture like maybe like a long tunic or a long shirt and he's got it pulled up and he's loading it with these gourds and coming back you know super excited cuts them up puts them in the stew Uh, commentators think there is a wild gourd that grows in that area uh, that uh, is very 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 bitter and in high volumes could be toxic and so most likely what they're saying is when they say there's death in the pot they're not saying literally like oh I've just been poisoned I'm dying they're they're like we can't eat this it's so bitter like we cannot eat this have you ever been there have you ever had a large group of people counting on you to provide food and you ruined the meal I've been there. One example, I'll give you a short example. One example was when I first began smoking. I had my smoker. I'm so excited. I'm going to do chicken because chicken only takes four hours. And I'm going to provide chicken for my family. And I've got my family waiting. And I'm bringing the chicken in after smoking it for four hours. You know, I'm excited. We're excited. The kids are there. Smells kind of smoky. Like, whoa, this is awesome. We're excited. Get the chicken on the table. And as I'm getting the knives and getting stuff ready, like that smokiness That was a little different than the normal smoke. It's kind of like a sour, smoky goodness. And we we cut it up, and the imagined phrases of, uh, you know, I'm I'm anticipating praise, and, oh, this is the best chicken that we've ever had. But those imagined praises that I'm expecting are replaced with groans of disgust as everyone, myself included, spits out the chicken, uh, and I had to throw away the whole chicken. Right? It was it was disgusting. It was terrible. Now, that's a funny example, but it was funny because we're not living in a land that had famine, and I could just call and order pizza, and we had pizza instead of the smoked chicken that we were looking forward to. But during this time, it would have been a terrible thing. During a time of famine, to have a whole pot, all the time it takes to make that stew, right? It wasn't a microwave. It took a long time to make that stew. It's a time where food is scarce, and here we have Uh, something that, that was supposed to be a blessing is now a burden. Have you been there? Have you had something that was supposed to be a blessing that becomes a burden or deliverance that becomes deadly? Maybe you were looking to a family vacation to help foster relationship with your kids only to have that vacation and those plans go wrong in something like you would see in a comedy movie. Or maybe you're looking forward to that date night to rekindle the flame only to have it lead to bickering and disappointment. Or that marketing campaign that was supposed to turn things around for your work has completely backfired, or your kids just wrecked the house moments before company is coming over. These type of situations can lead to despair and can have us wondering what's the use of trying? Nothing seems to go right. Well, how does God provide? Elijah fixes the stew. No, it's not supposed to be like, oh, Elisha's Gordon Ramsay. and Look, it, he, knows, he knows how to make this. He made this roux with this uh, flour, and he, he turned the stew into something awesome. No, he, he takes something, a precious commodity like flour, throws it in the pot, and God heals the stew. Again, the point is God healed the stew. God provides for his people during this time of hopelessness. Last story, and then we're going to get to application. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 38-41. through 41. Uh, sorry, verses uh, 42, not 38. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God some bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elijah said, Give it to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Well, what's happening here? Well, uh, what's the hopeless situation? There's not enough bread. We've got too many people and not enough food, right? One of the worst situations, if you're in a hosting situation, you always want to have more food than you need, not less. Now, what's interesting is this guy brings these 20 loaves, and it's the 20 loaves of the first, uh, first fruits. This was what was supposed to be brought to the priests as a grain offering. He doesn't bring it to the priests. He brings it to Elijah. Why? Well, again, we're supposed to... In our story, we're supposed to recognize, okay, this is the time of the rebels, right? He doesn't want to bring the empire who's turned to the dark side. He doesn't want to bring them, the loaves. He brings it to Elisha uh, to recognize, no, you're, this supposed to go to the man of God, the priest. You're you're the man of God because these people have turned away from the Lord. And so he brings these cakes of bread. And we think loaves, these aren't like Subway bread loaves, right? They're like, we're supposed to think of like buns. It's like 20 hamburger buns. And we've got 100 guys Hungry guys have been working maybe in the field all day, right? So you got 20 hamburger buns for 100 guys. That's not enough to feed those people. And so it's a hopeless situation. Have you been there before? What you had to offer, although you have the best intentions, doesn't seem to be enough to meet the needs in front of you. You don't appear to have the energy to keep up with your kids. You don't feel that you have the skill to cut it at work. You don't have the emotional bandwidth to pursue your spouse in the way they want or need. Have you been there? Well, what does God do? How does he provide in this situation? Well, he miraculously multiplies the bread so that it's enough. And again, like our first story, not just enough, but verse 44, there will be some left over. God provides more than enough for his people during hopeless situations. Well, let's apply this. Have you seen any similarities with these stories or other stories that you know from the Bible? Well, I think... Maybe most recently, because we've been going through this series, you might recognize a lot of stories very similar to what we heard with Elisha. And the point is you're supposed to. The author is, supposed to, is trying to show us that Elisha is the new Elisha. He, he's giving stories of, okay, you thought Elijah was just a unique guy. Well, guess what? It's God working through Elijah, And here Elisha is now carrying the mantle of God. And God's doing some of the very same miracles, different situations, but doing same miracles through Elisha. He's now God's prophet. But there's another prophet with very similar stories as well. It's Jesus. Listen to this quote from Raymond Dillard. We have the book out in the lobby. Uh, I didn't put the quote on the screen, so you're going to have to listen. Eight centuries later, this is him writing, Jesus was surrounded by his disciples and a large, hungry crowd. The disciples estimated that to feed them would require a sum equivalent to eight months of a man's wages. Instead of the 20 loaves that Elisha had, there were five loaves and two fishes, but 5,000 men ate, and there was food to spare. Later, Jesus would repeat this miracle for a crowd of 4,000. When Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowd knew that a prophet was in their midst. They had been anticipating the coming prophet who would be like Moses, one who would do the signs and wonders that Moses had done. Jesus fed the people in a remote place, just as Moses had fed them in the wilderness. Elisha had also fed a large crowd with a small amount of food, but now one greater than Moses and greater than Elisha had come. Moses and Elisha had satisfied the people's physical hunger for a time. But after Jesus fed the 5,000 and crossed the Sea of Galilee, he spoke to them of more than physical hunger. He proclaimed himself to be the bread that had come down from heaven, a food that would endure to eternal life. Those who come to him will never Grow hungry. The author of 2 Kings is trying to show us, he's trying to show his audience that Elisha is the new prophet of God, and the authors of the gospel are trying to show their audience and us that Jesus is the true prophet of God. He is the prophet of God. Jesus provided for widows in their time of need. Just like the long-awaited son was given to the Shunammite woman, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, was born to the Virgin Mary. Just as God through Elisha cares about and provided for the needs of the sons of the prophet in saving the stew, Jesus provided for the feast, the master of the wedding feast and the guests in Cana by turning water into wine. Just like God through Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. But unlike Elisha, Jesus didn't need to lay on her. He simply took her by the hand and said, little girl, I say to you, arise. Arise. Or to Lazarus, he simply shouts, Lazarus, come out. And just like that, Jesus takes you and I by the hand and says, little girl or little boy, arise to the new life I have created for you. And ultimately for himself. When he had been crucified and killed after three days, God raised him up never to die again. Do you know that Jesus? The truth is that apart from Christ, you and I are in a hopeless situation. God's just wrath for our sin is over us and there is no escape. There is no pleading with God. There's no bribery that you and I can give him and left on our own. We are dead in our trespasses and sins and subject to the full punishment of God for our sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Remember what I said at the beginning. First and Second Kings is written to show future generations how Israel fell. And the stories of Elisha and Elisha are to show us God's faithfulness and his compassion in the midst of Israel's rebellion. Likewise, the provision of God in our hopelessness is Jesus. God is renewing all things in Jesus. Our eternal hope is new heavens and new earth with God as its center. Creation restored in the way that God had intended and all we need to do is to receive him by faith, to trust that his death counts for our death, and that he it is he that makes us right before God, and to live our lives for him, to pursue God through relationship in Christ. Do you know him today? I pray that you will find your hope in him today. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.